Thank you for choosing the podcast of East Haven Baptist Church in Brookhaven, Mississippi. For more information on the ministries of East Haven and to access videos and sermon notes from our services, visit www.easthaven.net. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 32. We will be there in a moment, right? Um, we, will, we will work our way to Exodus 32. But I want us just to think, first of all, how many times in each of our individual lives that we have been personally affected by jealousy? Maybe someone else's jealousy, maybe our own jealousy. Jealousy can be a very dangerous thing. You find whenever you read uh, the works of William Shakespeare, Shakespeare famously uh, attributed uh, jealousy or, or compared jealousy to the green-eyed monster. And if you have ever been a victim of jealousy, you know that it is just that. It can be monstrous. It can be a very difficult thing. Relationships have ended over jealousy. And you hear people talk about, well, this person was just too jealous. They were jealous of affection. They were jealous of time. They were, they were jealous of me. And then whenever we have those thoughts in our mind about jealousy, we read a passage like we read last week, and I just want to reference that, in Exodus chapter 20, when God gives the Ten Commandments, and we find these words, I am the Lord your God, this is Exodus 20 starting in verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Wait, wait, what? For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So God is perfect and God is jealous. In fact, God is perfectly jealous. And God is the only one who can truly 100% of the time be perfectly jealous. Now I know that sometimes our knee-jerk reaction is, well that's not a good thing. Jealousy is not a good thing. Jealousy is never a good thing. Well no, in fact jealousy can be a good thing. And jealousy in and of itself, now hear me, jealousy at its core meaning is not a bad thing. Jealousy is just this. Let me give you my working definition. It is a desire for exclusive faithfulness. A strong desire for exclusive faithfulness. That's jealousy. And and spouses have that exclusive desire or that desire for exclusive faithfulness to one another. That's a good type of jealousy. But whenever jealousy gets over to the point of being possessive or jealousy gets into the point of being a point of wanting to control other people that's where you have a problem in fact you find in second corinthians chapter 11 verse 2 paul writes to the church at corinth and he says i am jealous for you with a divine jealousy with a godly jealousy in some translations he's saying i am jealous for you as god is jealous for you and the same word that is translated there for jealous in the new testament is a word that's translated other places in the New Testament for the, with the, or for the word envy. So it depends on how it's used. It can be positive, it can be negative, it depends on how it's used. But now we're looking back in the Old Testament, we're looking at God being jealous. Why can God be jealous? Here it is. God can be perfectly jealous because God is perfect. 
And if God were not jealous for himself, jealous for his own glory, then God would not be perfect. If you're absolutely positively perfect and somebody runs after something else to worship, then you are, and if you let that go, what you are basically saying is, I'm okay with that. It's okay they worship other things. It's okay they have idols. It's okay they put things on par with me. But God can't do that because God's perfectly holy. God is absolutely without fault, without flaw, without error. He is completely and totally pure. And so because of that, God can be jealous. God has a strong desire for exclusive faithfulness to him. So let's look at how we get to Exodus 32. If you go all the way back to Exodus 19, now we're not going to read these passages today, but you can just make notes on your outline. If you go all the way back to Exodus 19, you find that Moses and Israel, they've been released from Egypt three months out, three months away from Egypt, three months away from captivity, and they arrive at Mount Sinai. And there on Mount Sinai, we find that God's presence descends. The Bible tells us that there's the sound of thundering and there's, there's a fire up on the mountain and there's dark clouds enveloping it. And the voice of God is speaking, thundering from his cloud of, of his presence there on Mount Sinai. And the people are terrified. And Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God. And that's where we get to Exodus chapter 20. In Exodus 20, Moses meets with God and God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, and then he proceeds to give him all the rest of the law there on Mount Sinai. And you find in Exodus 24 that, Exodus, uh, that Moses comes down from the mountain, he meets with the people, and he says, listen, this is what God says. This is his law. These are his rules. These are all the things God says about following him. And he reads it to the people. And the people said, yeah, we'll do that. You got it, Moses. We'll follow that. So Moses makes a sacrifice. And in making the sacrifice, he is confirming this covenant with God. God and the people have entered into a covenant together. And so what does Moses do then? He heads back up the mountain. And then you find in the following chapters leading up to chapter 32 that God gives Moses now all the layout of the tabernacle the tent that they would build there in order to worship the one true God. They lay out all the duties of the priesthood. Aaron, the priest, this is how he is to follow. These are the rules and the regulations in approaching me. I can't just be approached any old way because I am a holy God. So you have to have reverence as you approach me. And so God lays all this out for Moses. And we find that this period of time, there was 40 days and 40 nights, according to the end of chapter 24, that Moses is on the mountain with God. Well, what are the people doing during this time? The people, Aaron and the rest of the crew, they're down at the base of the mountain. Looking up, being able to look up and see the very presence of God. And that brings us to chapter 32 and where I want us to settle down today. So in chapter 32, verse 1, we find this. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the 40 days and 40 nights, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, 
make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Play is a euphemistic way of saying that they were engaged in religious sexual practices, cultic, cultic religious sexual practices together. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. So Israel has provoked God's jealousy with their idolatry. And I want us to look at just two verses I want us to look at Exodus 32, 7 and 8 this morning. And I want us to look at whenever we provoke God's jealousy with idolatry, what are some of those things that we do in order to prompt and to provoke God's jealousy? Well, the first one is this. We provoke God's jealousy as we live like we are not God's people. We live like we're not God's people. Look what God says to Moses in verse 7. Go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Do you see what God is saying? Moses, these are your folks. They're not living like my people. They're living like human-based understanding people. They're living like the rest of the nations. Your people that you brought up, God's the one who brought them up. And they're God's people, and God's telling Moses, your people who you brought up, they've, they've turned their back on me. They, they've started adopting these idols. They're living like they're not God's people. This is the warning that God gives in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Listen to Deuteronomy 6, 14 and 15. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the angel of your, the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroys you from off the face of the earth. Don't run after the gods of people who are around you. You find in Exodus 34, 13, a very similar passage. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. That was a, an idol to the, the goddess Asherah. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. God is a jealous God, and we are to live like we are his people. When we worship anything or anybody other than God, we are living as though we are not his. And by the way, if you look back in Exodus 32, you find that as they're building these, this golden calf, that Aaron says, Tomorrow will be a feast day for the Lord. 
What is he doing there? He's trying to take worship of the Lord, and he's trying to take worship of this idol, and he's trying to fuse them together to not only bring God down to a level that they can deal with him, but also to lift up their own doing, work of their own hands, and put it on the same level as God. The, the $2 theological term for that is syncretism. Syncretism. Syncretistic worship, where you, where you take two, other, two kinds of worship, worship of two different things, and try to blend them together into a belief blender so that you end up with something that kind of does, uh, does uh, some sort of, uh, of worship or allows some degree of reverence for one side, but also another side. And you blend them together. And in doing so, you're not living like you're God's people. Why? Because God's name is jealous. And what's jealousy? It is a strong desire for exclusive faithfulness. It's exclusive faithfulness. And when we start giving that faithfulness, even in part, to someone or something else, we are living unlike God's people are called to live. So idolatry provokes God's jealousy as we live like we're not God's people. Uh, you ever go by somebody's house? Or maybe it's your own house. But more specifically, if you're driving by somebody's house and you see, you see some toys out on the lawn. You see like a, a little bike in the carport or on the, the front sidewalk. You see, you see a baseball bat, a little, like a t-ball set or something out there in the yard. And you think, well, they must have kids. That's your immediate assumption. You don't normally think there's a 40-something-year-old out there you know, playing t-ball. Maybe if you're really bad at Kidding, maybe. But you don't really find that. And you say, these people must have kids. And so we need to live in such a way that the world looks at us and says, God must have kids. God must have kids and you must be one of them. Because the way you're doing things is not like the way we're accustomed to seeing things done. It's not like the other nations around us. We are supposed to be distinct. We're supposed to be different. We're to live like we're God's people. But whenever we're worshiping idols, we live like we are not God's people. The second way that we find in this, these two short verses that idolatry provokes God's jealousy is this. It's when we turn from God's truth. Look at verse 8 again. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. He doesn't just say they turned aside. He says they turned aside quickly. They've turned aside quickly in the way that I've commanded them. You go back. You look at the Exodus account. Whenever they were brought out of Egypt, every single plague that was brought upon Egypt was God's way of bringing down one particular God of Egypt that should have been able to overcome that particular plague. That's what God says. God says, in bringing these plagues, I am going to exercise judgment on the gods of Egypt. Those are his words. And when you look at every plague, they line up with one or more of the gods of Egypt. And God is saying, that God is useless. This God is useless. This God is powerless. This God is impotent before me. No one is able to stand before me. So Israel saw this happen. But not only did they see this happen, they are three months away from those events, three short months away from those events, 
And now they find themselves at the base of Mount Sinai, looking up at the presence of God himself among them. And Moses has just recently come down the mountain to tell them, these are the rules that God says. And he says, don't have any other gods. And they go, yes, you got it. We will follow you. And then Moses goes up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And now in Moses' absence, the people said, we need to make a God. We need a God we can look at. We need a God we can follow. We need a God we can see who is before us, one that we can approach and that we can handle. Not this God who's far off up here in the black clouds and the thunder and the lightnings. That's scary. How about a God we can deal with? How about a God we can manage? But in, able, but in order to do that, they have to turn aside from what they know is true. And that's exactly what they did. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They had spiritual amnesia in a hurry. And we can willfully exercise that spiritual amnesia. We go before God's word. God's word speaks to us. We come on a Sunday morning. We have a Bible study. We read at home ourselves. And then we say, oh, wow, Lord, that's really convicting. And then an hour later, we're back to exactly what we were up to before. God says that when we turn from God's truth, when we turn from his truth and turn toward idols, we are provoking the jealousy of God. Listen to Psalm chapter 40, verse 4. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You don't turn aside and pursue a lie. You pursue the truth of the word of God. You find that you find the ultimate, the ultimate playing out of this, or the dramatic playing out of this, in Romans chapter 1, verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. And and I worry because sometimes. I look in my own life, I look at people in the church, I look at people in Christianity in our nation today, and I see how they want to take certain things and they want to fuse them with God and say, ooh, ooh, these are good, so they must be of God. No, we depend upon God and God alone. And we trust in his word alone. Uh, I, have to, I had to ask myself at one point in time in my ministry, is the gospel powerful enough on its own does it need my help do i need to explain away certain areas of the gospel i don't mean give a true biblical interpretation and explanation that's what i'm talking about do i need to add to or subtract from the message of christ in order to make it more potent the answer is no you can't do that but you find that that gets done. Oh, well, if we do this and 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 this, then maybe we'll have a little window where maybe we can kind of squeeze the gospel in there. We can squeeze the message of redemption in there. We can squeeze the fact that we're all sinners in need of salvation. Maybe we can just, we can just shoehorn it in there and hopefully somebody will listen. That is not what we find as the pattern in the Bible. The gospel has power. So therefore, we depend upon the power of God's word. 
So many times I've told people when they've come to me in recent days and they said, oh, what do you think we should do about so-and-so and so-and-so? We need to get deeper into the truth and then allow God to transform us. Yeah, well, I, I like that, but what else? Do we truly believe that God's truth is absolutely and positively sufficient for everything that we encounter? Now, either it is or it's not. And if it's not, then quit saying it is. If it is, live by it. We don't turn aside from God's truth. We don't turn aside because things get hard. We don't turn aside because culture says it's stupid to follow God. We don't turn aside because the culture says the Bible isn't true. We don't turn aside because the Bible reinterprets the Bible to fit their own tune. We don't turn aside from the truth. We don't compromise. The truth of the word is the truth of the word, and that's what we follow. And idolatry, idolatry provokes God's jealousy because we reject the nature of God's truth that is absolutely true and completely and totally dependable. That's exactly what they did there at the foot of Sinai. Thirdly, idolatry provokes God's jealousy as we create personal substitutes for God. Look what God says in verse 8. They have made for themselves a golden calf. Moses, you need to get off the mountain. Go down and address this. They're your people, by the way. They have messed up. They have made for themselves a golden calf. Now see, Moses didn't know this. Can't you just imagine? Moses there on the mountain, he's been talking to God. God's been giving him all this information about how to build the tabernacle and how to worship and everything. And Moses is thinking, wow, this is going to be amazing. And God's like, okay, by the way, uh, time out. Get down the mountain. They've made a golden calf. They made a what? They made a golden calf. Golden calf? What are you talking about? They made a gold. Now, I know that's not recorded in the Bible. All right. I don't imagine he had that back and forth. Can't you just imagine Moses' thought process? Here I am on the mountain. I'm receiving from you, O oh Lord, the message on how your tabernacle is to be constructed and how Aaron is to dress and purify himself and prepare himself to lead the people to worship you, the one true God. And you mean to tell me that he's down there right now making an idol? And worshiping it, they've made for themselves these gods. They've created personal substitutes for God. And by the way, they had all this jewelry. If you look back in the Exodus account, you find where they got a lot of that jewelry. Because God told them, go in, as, as they were about to leave Egypt, go in and tell the Egyptians, we want your jewelry. And they're going to give it to you. Because they just want you to go. So you've got some of the jewelry that Israel is wearing. And, and the, that gold that they're wearing, some of it which was a mark of God's blessing and protection and providence for them, they turn around and they use it to make an idol to worship and say, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. And they're saying, these are the gods that brought us out of Egypt. And it's made out of metal that they got, gold that they got, because God had provided for them miraculously in delivering them. And then they want to turn around and make it into an idol. A little side note here. How many times do we do the same thing? We take a work of God and we mistake the work of God for God himself. And we worship the work rather than the one who did the work. We, we, we as, as one writer many times ago or many years ago said, sometimes in the church we run the risk of worshiping worship and praising praise. 
We can reach a point that we, we look upon the work of God and we idolize the work of God instead of recognizing this was done by God. And we idolize the experience over the God who actually led us. They have made for themselves a golden calf. You find in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 22, Paul asks this question. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he The understood answer to that is no. We shouldn't provoke God to jealousy. And also, no, we're not stronger than he is. No, we don't get to make our own idols. No, we don't get to say this is on par with God. This is on the same level as God. We don't get to do that. In in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, listen to the words of Paul. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. We don't make substitute gods because all things were created for God. We were created for God. So we don't get to go make our own idols. We don't get to make substitute gods. Now I'm just using my sanctified imagination here. Do you know what I wonder sometimes? I wonder how many times after this, when Aaron went into that tabernacle to sacrifice a calf before the one true God, did he think about that golden calf, that crude metal image that they bowed down to as God himself? I wonder if he ever thought, hmm, Lord, so sorry. Lord, you're God. Not, not these idols. We cannot provoke God's jealousy. And, and we, we should stay away from creating personal substitutes for God. We just can't do that as people who are truly following him in faith. So we live like we're not God's people. We turn from God's truth. We create personal substitutes for God. And then here's the final one. It's probably the most frightening. We attempt to steal God's glory. Look at verse, verse 8 again. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped and sacrificed to it and said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. They've made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and then said, this is what delivered us. This is the one who delivered Never mind that the presence of God went before them day and night. Never mind they were at the base of Sinai looking up and saw this dark cloud with all the lightning and the thundering and the fire. Never mind all that's going on. In, you notice they're, they're committing idolatry in the very presence of God himself. And we say, how could they do that? The same way that we who have the Holy Spirit within us engage in idolatry now. We have the presence of God himself, God himself living within us if we're followers of Christ. And we still sometimes engage in idolatry. It's not so surprising that Israel would be doing that. I mentioned that one point in time, and a gentleman said, ah, 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 but. See, Israel could see that. See, so that's that's harder to believe. We really can't see God. And I said, yes, but the Holy Spirit is in you, controlling you, living through you. 
That is a more serious indictment than a God up on a mountain where there is a God living within your heart. It's much more serious for us. Much more serious for us. But they attempt to steal God's glory. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it. If you, if you do a study, if you just go through the Bible and look at the idea of God's glory and how God is jealous for his glory, you will find that's a pattern all throughout the Bible. Listen to Isaiah 48, verse 9. For my namesake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. That is, I've, I've tried you not in a literal fire, but in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God says, I'm not going to give my glory to another. I'm not going to share my glory with somebody else. And you have Israel here at the base of Sinai. They are attempting to steal God's glory and attribute God's glory to make this golden calf be a co-participant in the glory of God. God said, I'm not going to have it. How about Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 22? Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. God tells Israel, whenever I'm going to act in this way, I'm not acting for your sake, I'm acting for the sake of my name. What, is that, what does that mean? Well, listen to Isaiah 43, 20, 25. I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Now, wait a minute. I would think that God's doing it for our sake. It's not what he says here. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. That sounds kind of self-centered. Yes, God is the only being in the universe who can be perfectly self-centered. He should be. He's concerned about his glory. And Israel was attempting to steal God's glory. You notice all through the Bible, it's all pointing back toward the glory of God. Listen to Jesus. Jesus says he's praying. John chapter 12, verse 27. Now my soul, now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Jesus says, above all, Father, I want your name to be glorified. I want your name to be lifted up. I want you to have the full glory for this. But that still gets back to the point. What does God mean when he's talking about for my name's sake? All right, well, let's do a very brief little word study. When you look through the Old Testament and you look at the word for sake, it is a word that means to take heed or for a purpose. It's also connected to the word that means to sing, to shout, or to announce, to proclaim. It's a word that means pay attention. Pay attention because take heed because there is a, 
a purpose that's going on here. And when you look up the word name, it's not just mean the name, like the word that you're called. It's a word that means character. It's a word that can mean the honor. So when you look at the phrase, for my name's sake, you put all of that together. God is saying, for my name's sake is, take heed, pay attention, for the, the weight of my honor. Take heed to my character. Pay attention. That's what God is saying when he's talking about for my namesake. So he says, Israel, I'm going to do this. I'm not doing this ultimately for you. I'm doing it. Take heed. Pay attention. I'm about to show you something about my character and my honor that you need to know. That's what it means when God talks about for his namesake. Every time God does something for his namesake, he is making a clear statement about his character, about his honor, about his glory. That's what he's doing. So then we get down to real life application for us. Does God change people's lives? Yes, absolutely. Does God answer prayer? Yes, absolutely. Is God concerned about human suffering? Sure, yes, biblically, yes. Did Jesus die on the cross for our sins? Absolutely, yes. But God does not change lives ultimately for the person. God doesn't change our lives ultimately for us. God doesn't answer prayer ultimately for us. God doesn't concern himself with human suffering ultimately for us. God does not, hang on to this, God does not grant us salvation ultimately for us. Ultimately, it's for the glory of God. So when God changes a life, he is proclaiming, I'm going to get the glory. So when God answers a prayer, he is singing, I'm going to get the glory. When God concerns himself with human suffering, he is making a clear statement, I'm going to get the glory. When God saves a person. God is not saying ultimately that's for them. No, he's saying ultimately that's for me because I made them and now I have bought them and now I have called them and now I have saved them and now they are my own and it is for me. God is the only one who can be perfectly jealous and praise God that he's a jealous God. Thank you, God. That you're not a God who says, I don't care how you worship me. I don't care if you compare somebody to me. I don't care if you put somebody on the same level as me. I don't care if you knock me down a few notches so that I'm able to be dealt with and tolerated. And, and, I'm, I, and, I, and I don't, I, it's okay that you try to compensate for some lack that you feel that I have. God doesn't say any of that. God says, I'm the only one true God. And you worship me and you don't worship anything else. You don't worship anybody else. You don't put anything on the same level as me. You don't put anything above me. And it's a really good idea not even letting anything even come close to that. I am the one true God. I am a jealous God. And God continually seeks to protect his own honor. Listen, it's not wrong that God is jealous. Because God's the only one worthy. It's not a problem that, that God seeks his own honor because he is the only one 
rightly who can receive all honor and all praise and all glory. It's only God. So why do we make of all this? Well, at the end of chapter, or at the end of this passage in chapter 32, we find that God tells Moses, Moses, you know, tell you what, just you get away from them. I'm going to wipe them out. I'll make you a new people. We will start over. Israel 2.0. How about that, Moses? And if you read on ahead, we don't have time to read it, but you read on ahead and you find Moses says, God, wait, 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 God, wait. On behalf of the people, Lord, you made some promises. Lord, they are your people. God, if you wipe them out, what are the nations going to say? You see what Moses is saying? God, it's about your glory. God, don't do that. God, God, forgive them. And God, if, it, if, it, if, it's, if it's not possible just to, to deal with them, then blot my name out of the book of life. You see what Moses does? He steps in and he intercedes. All right, God, I'll stand in the gap. And I'll take it all on me if I have to. Just forgive them. That sounds familiar. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? That's what Christ did for the glory of God. He interceded on our behalf. He stepped in there when we were down at the base of Sinai doing God knows what. And Jesus steps in and says, hey, God, I'll pay the price. It was planned for all eternity. That was a given. Before God said, let there be anything, it was understood that his son would go to the cross. But Jesus went to the cross. Jesus interceded when we were idolaters and following all manner of things that were not God's. God himself provided a substitute. God himself provided a sacrifice. God himself provided his son. And if you're here this morning and maybe you say, I'm not an idolater. Oh, we all are. One shape, form, or fashion, or another, we all are. But if you're there this morning and, and you say, I'm not an idolater, can I just tell you, yes, we've all sinned and all fallen short of the glory of God. And anything I've placed on the level with God and anything I've attempted to put on the throne of God, whether it's me, myself, or someone else, or something else, a possession, a title, a skill, or anything along those lines, that's an idol. God says, I'm the only one, I'm the one that's worthy of worship. So can I tell you today, you can turn from your idols and worship the one true God. Jesus has stepped in. Jesus is an intercessor. Jesus stood in that gap. Jesus took our place on that cross to bridge that gap that we ourselves would never be able to bridge. And he gives us his own righteousness. And he took the wrath of our sin upon himself. All the wrath of God. All the idolatry and all the rejection and all the rebellion that we could ever imagine. He took it upon himself. And because of that sacrifice, we can know God. We can know the one true God. We can have the Holy Spirit living within us. We can have communion with the creator God of the universe. And then live with him for eternity. Can I just say this? If you got an idol, forsake it. Flee from it. Drop it. Turn to the one true God. No matter what that idol may be, you may say, but it's so small. You're still an idol. 
Turn from your idols. Follow the one true God. Because God is a God, the only God, who is perfectly jealous. And he has a strong desire for exclusive faithfulness to himself. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. God, thank you that your word is just so clear. Lord, we give you thanks that you you receive all the glory because you're the only one worthy of it. Lord, we pray now as, as we come to a close this morning, Father, we pray that that your word would continue to work in us. The seeds that, that you sowed would bring fruit. Take root, bring fruit. Father, we pray that you would do just that. Father, if there's anything in any of our lives that you would look at and rightly deem as an idol, Father, I pray today would be the day we would say, no more. I'm turning away from them. Father, so many of us are, we live like we're there at the base of Sinai, making gods for ourselves, and worshiping them, and all the while trying to fuse that with your holiness and combine that with, with your purity and trying to diminish in doing so your glory. Father, I pray today would be the day we would set aside our idols and we would just follow you. The God who desires exclusive faithfulness, may we be exclusively faithful to you. Father, I pray for anybody here this morning that needs to make a decision to follow you. Father, they have heard the message of hope that comes from Christ alone. Father, I pray today would be the day they would say, I need Christ. I want to surrender my life to the one true God and know him through the sacrifice that Jesus, fully God and fully man, made for me on the cross. And Father, I pray for anybody here who is already a follower of Christ and maybe they have some little pet idol, maybe tucked away in some corner of their heart. Father, I pray today would be the day they would walk away from it and they would allow that area of their life to be completely filled and ruled over by your authority, by your word, may you speak truth to them and then give them direction and guidance and strength to follow your commands and obey you out of a heart of love, love for you, faithfulness to you, glory and honor and praise to your name. So Father, we pray during this time, whatever decisions need to be made, they'd be made in such a way that bring you the most glory possible. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.